0: We want to start off by what we do on on Paranormal uh, to explain what it is. And then what we usually do at the beginning of every episode is I'll say something like, Hey, welcome to Paranormal. And, you know, our panel is with us and we'll just run through the names. But I'm going to have everybody up here introduce themselves. Everyone that you see here, except for Derek and Josh, is a normal... I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> ...is a regular uh, panel member uh, for the Paranormal Podcast. We've asked Eric and Josh to participate uh, with us tonight um, for this topic. Now, just by way of explanation, if you go to... Okay, I'm going to skip that one for now. If you go to this URL, it's www.thedivinecouncil.com slash newtonpdf.pdf You'll get a two-page PDF that will list out the sources that we're going to talk about tonight and a little bit about the topic itself. Our topic for tonight is Isaac Newton and biblical prophecy. Now, paranormal, what we do, and you'll have this all on your PDF... What the podcast tries to do is simple. I'll read you from the website. Paranormal is a podcast that focuses on the paranormal, but with a significant twist. Paranormal, uh, paranormal introduces listeners to peer-reviewed research on all things generally considered paranormal, ghosts, PSI, ESP, NDEs, OBEs, UFOs, 40 and stuff, alien abduction, cryptozoology, the whole bit. Believe it or not, real research in real labs by real scientists and scholars gets published every year on all these topics and more. Other podcasts, again, sort of focus on opinion and speculation. What we try to do here is go through peer-reviewed research material on a given topic and then discuss it. So I'm going to show you or introduce to you what we read, but first I want the panel to introduce themselves one by one, just give a quick word of who you are, what you do, and you can promote anything you like. So we'll we'll start with Doug in the end.
1: Uh, Hi, I'm Doug Van Dorn. I uh, have been at a church as a pastor for 17 years in Colorado. It's called the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado. uh, Founded that church. And uh, let's see, I've written a couple books. One is on giants. And another one is actually edited by mike and it is the companion volume to the unseen realm so it's a it's a question and answer thing i wrote it kind of as a little catechism uh, of the supernatural i didn't know that anything like that existed and i don't think that it does until now
0: and, the, and there are 95 questions 95
1: in questions in honor of martin so, luther some so. of you will catch the drift.
0: <laughs> that was my doing
1: <laughs> i like that go ahead My name is Brian
2: Godawa, and uh, I discovered Mike's work about nine years ago when he was in process, actually, and he put it up online because he didn't think anybody would be interested in it while he was writing it, what became The Unseen Realm. And uh, discovering that work and discovering the whole Divine Council and the Deuteronomy 32 worldview just blew my mind. And I started writing novels, and I've written about 15 novels based on that worldview, and they're all biblical stories retold with the divine Council, deuteronomy 32 worldview and uh, it's called chronicles of the nephilim so um uh, so i'm an author
3: oh.
4: <laughs> we're the only ones i'm doug overmeyer and i run a little online ministry called crc.com it's crc ministry um turns out that a bunch of people can see spiritual things they don't know how to process what they're seeing. And Christians typically haven't given them a worldview to process it, so typically they go to the New Age. Um, our, I came across Mike's stuff because it turns out Divine Counsel Theology is pretty much explains what these people are seeing and how to interpret it. And so the ministry is designed to sort of give, provide that worldview, that interpretive framework, so they can um, under, better understand what is going on in the spirit realm around them.
5: I am Natalie Houdeschel, probably better known publicly as Natalina. Um, For several years I was the host of Beyond Extraordinary Radio and wrote the website ExtraordinaryIntelligence.com. I've taken an intentional hiatus from those projects for a couple of reasons. I got married, I moved across the country, things like that. But I will get back into it, but I always stayed with the pure normal thing, because I really believe in this project. I think it's really got a place in, in this community and in Christian media. And uh, Mike has always been really kind to me throughout my work, and I'm just really proud to be part of this.
6: My name is Derek Gilbert, and you can see why they never let me handle the equipment <laughs> when I was in my professional broadcast career. Um, I have... I'm honored to say that every one of the members of this panel had been a guest on my podcast, A View from the Bunker, at one point or another, VFTB.net, if you're curious. Uh, Mike has been appearing on my podcast since 2006, and it's about time that he had me on his.
0: (laughs) Well, here you are.
3: (laughs) That's it. I'm Josh Peck. I host Into the Multiverse for Skywatch TV. I've been uh, working there for quite some time now. I uh, absolutely love it. Uh, Mike was actually kind enough to write the foreword to my most recent book written with Stephen Bancars called The Second Coming of the New Age. Uh, so if you guys are interested in that, you can check it out. And, uh, yeah, that's probably all that's relevant yeah. for this panel.
0: Yeah, so we, I mean, the reason why I do this, let me go back to this one slide. I do two things that I, I file in the bucket of postmodern apologetics. Okay, this is one of them. This podcast, we're 21 episodes in. We try to do one every few months. um, Just to try to have some presence online discussing certain things in a a credible way. Again, our focus is on peer-reviewed research, but all of our discussions will invariably get steered toward, well, you know, if this thing that we're talking about is real or some part of it is real, how does that sort of factor into a Christian worldview? Or maybe better said, how does a Christian worldview provide a platform for commentary on that thing? So we're hoping, again, that people run into that when they search for things like, you know, Newton and Bible prophecy tonight, or we've done vampires and zombies and all sorts of topics... Uh, if you get, get the PDF, you'll see what our episodes, our previous episodes were. But we just want to have a little, little bit of space, uh, hoping that again people land on it. It's the same thing with Fringe Pop three two one. This is a YouTube channel I have. FP three two one is, you know, is is a website. That each episode that we do on Fringe Pop, and there are sixty six episodes now on the YouTube channel. Um, they get a they get a corresponding web page where I try to direct people to good you know content about a particular subject but fringe pop is on youtube because again people are going to search google they're going to search you know youtube for all sorts of you know fringy subjects and i'm trying to inject a little bit of sanity into the discussion and also to get people to think better about jesus and better about the bible because those things just get dragged into worldview fringy topics like ancient aliens and whatnot so fringe pop 321 covers the gamut of things uh we we film in dallas but again it's just an effort to be a needle in a in a haystack called the internet that hopefully you know someone will find and be able to think better about the lord and you know scripture ancient texts in general just just you know think well and so paranormal again we have a a cast that does that. Fringe Pop, I do interviews. I've I've interviewed Steve, for example, on a number of episodes, but a lot of it is just me, again, on a set doing topics. But Pure Normal is where we actually have group discussion, and I I actually prefer that. I like it because I always learn something in each episode. None of us are really experts on basically anything that that we do here. We've all been exposed to the topics we cover. So, you know, we kind of come really in at the same place uh, for a lot of these. And we always learn something. And again, we just hope the content is useful. So for this episode, what we did was Newton and Bible prophecy. I'm going to just show you real quickly. Here's what we we all read. Uh, These are essays in books that are really expensive. (laughs) But I photocopied them and sent them to everybody. So we have uh, Kokavi on one prophet interprets another, Sir Isaac Newton and Daniel. Again, this is a high-faluting academic publisher published overseas. Uh, in the same book, Moore, Newton and the Language of Biblical Prophecy, we read that essay. Harkness, Alchemy and Eschatology: Exploring the Connections between John Dee and Isaac Newton. Sarah Hutton, The Seven Trumpets and the Seven Vials, Apocalypticism and Christology in Newton's Theological Writings. And two more, uh, Murrin on Newton's apocalypse, basically his view of the book of Revelation, and Smolensky, the logic of millennial thought, Sir Isaac Newton among his contemporaries. Now you can see those six readings, and I had another one that wasn't peer-reviewed that I threw in uh, that had a little chart on Newton's symbols for interpreting prophecy, which we'll get into tonight. But you can see that there are people who actually specialize in Isaac Newton's theological thought. Like there are scholars out there that have like spent a considerable amount of time in their careers doing that. And with every one of these fringe topics, there's somebody out there that is the expert on that and they publish. And so we try to find that stuff and go through it. Now, for the sake of this evening, I'm gonna start with this quote and I may go through another slide or two, but open it up. One of the authors says this, talking about Newton and the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel occupied a special place in the biblical research of Sir Isaac Newton. The scientist's interpretation of Daniel, his decoding of the book's cryptic language, and his discussion of theological questions, among them the second coming, all emanated from the sense of a special mission this feeling grew from a belief that the wisdom to understand the prophecy was transmitted from God to a chosen person, himself. Newton believed that he was gifted by God to unlock the secrets of Daniel and Revelation. Now, I, I have personally found that within the evangelical community that's interested in prophecy people have discovered Newton. And because it's Isaac Newton, you think, well, he was a really smart guy. You know, I'll bet he nailed it. Or maybe we should think about what he says. And so that's why we want to explore the topic. What did Newton really do? What did he think? You know, what, what goes behind this little I'm chosen kind of thing? He had two interpretive conditions. He wanted to decode, decode the cryptic language of Daniel and Revelation, the apocalypse of John, and he thought that people needed a spiritual capability to do this. Namely, for him, it was recognizing the Trinity was an abomination.
3: <laughs> uh oh. Uh oh.
0: <laughs> and he, also, you had to understand nature, you had to understand general revelation to understand special revelation. Newton was really good at understanding general revelation. He's Isaac Newton. Newtonian physics. He was an expert there. And so he believed that qualified him to be an interpreter of prophecy. So we're going to open it up, and we can take this anywhere you want to go. Brian, I know you're, you're just chomping at them. There's, so, there's so much. Where do you begin? Go ahead. I mean, what, what did you all think about? Well, What did we learn about Newton, how he approached the Bible? Let's just start real simple.
3: Well, I know for me, I was really surprised by how much I thought I knew and then how little I actually knew. <laughs>
6: We're um, often surprised by that, too. Yeah. It's <laughs> TV.
3: You made that easy. Maybe, Maybe, I should I, should <laughs> I sit
0: between you guys? <laughs> I think you're going to need to split us
3: up. Send Derek to He's the back make of make turn his
6: podcast around. <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> well, I, I've heard of this prophecy before. There was a famous documentary made, um, what, 15, 20 years ago, something like that by now, uh, about it. And that, that, was ki- that was kind of about it that I was familiar with. But there's so much that's actually in the available literature that I didn't realize. Like, for example... Isaac Newton didn't only have just the 2060 date for the end of the world. He also didn't have the, the view of the end of the world that we would think of when we think end of the world. You know, he wasn't viewing some big cataclysm. Uh, also, how he arrived at that date. Um, I thought it would, you know, because it's Newton, I thought it would be some big complex thing and it, it turns out it really wasn't. Uh, so all of that surprised me, plus the anti-Trinitarianism uh, surprised me as well. Um, uh, so there, there was a lot there that I didn't expect uh, to find that that was really of interest. Maybe we can start with some of that.
6: Well, the thing I thought was really interesting was that he seemed to feel that uh, dividing Daniel into two parts, the first part which was uh, the the process by which uh, Christianity deviated from the original teaching of God. Uh, and then secondly, you know, what, what would happen in the end times? But that kind of requires finding the point at which Christianity went off the rails. And for him, that was the, uh, the Council of Constantinople in the year 381, which was when the, uh, yeah. the, the heresy of Arianism was denounced by the church, uh, which was the uh, doctrine that, uh, if I understand it correctly, that Jesus was, not, was a created being. He was not fully God and fully man. Uh, the, Trini- the doctrine of the Trinity, in other words, was formally endorsed by the church. And for Newton, that was the point at which Christianity just went wrong. Mm-hmm. But then he, well, there were a couple of things. We can talk more about how he reached his uh, time, time, and half a times equaling 1,260 years instead of days. But what I thought was really interesting was what uh, the, the speculation that perhaps he took that 1,260 years from the date 381, which brought you to the year 1641, one year before his birth. what a coincidence. Yeah. (laughs) And years ago, and Brian, you'd appreciate this, there was an episode of the television show Millennium that featured a... uh, a, a kid who was obsessed with end times prophecy Living in a trailer with like two dozen televisions Tuned to every news channel, weather channel, police scanner That he could find And on the floor in lieu of a whiteboard He had all of these charts and graphs and names You know, Gog, Magog, Russia, Iraq War, pestilence, plague And in the center with all of these lines drawing And arrows pointing in big circles Was the word me And that's kind of the sense I got of Isaac Newton
2: Yeah, <laughs> amen Me too and uh, I was particularly disturbed to find out about how much his anti-Trinitarianism was the heart and soul of a lot of his interpretation as well. That was that was a shocker. Um, yeah, you mentioned it, that one of the other elements that stuck out was that he took the the particular interpretation that actually um, I was not really aware of this until I met a uh, Seventh-day Adventist, and that's, that's what they believe, that uh, the pattern for prophecy interpretation is a day equals a year, and there are a couple yeah. prophecies in the Old Testament where God says that a day will equal a year in this prophecy, and then they say, "Well, therefore, it's applied to all pro- all prophetic interpretation, and therefore, that's why twelve hundred sixty days becomes twelve hundred sixty years."
0: Yeah, you're, you're talking about the, the prophetic year of three hundred and sixty. Yeah.
2: yeah, 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 and um, so that was kind of interesting, and. Uh, of course, it fits in with all this. His particular end times view and his interpretation of how it worked out in history, you know. So yeah, those were a couple things that that stood out to me.
0: Yeah, and I, by the way, when uh, Derek was talking, I put up the th- these are the three key dates just so that you know. Uh, and Newton based it on Daniel seven twenty five. That's where he he focuses on the twelve sixty. But go ahead. I
5: I just think that one of the most fascinating things when we talk about how he got to a lot of his conclusions about prophecy has to be mentioned that almost maybe before what the Bible actually says was his occultism. I mean his alchemy and the Kabbalah Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. He seemed to derive so much of from those sources and then started applying it to biblical prophecy to the point where it seems like from some of the papers that we read there was like he would almost lean more toward the things that he pulled from the alchemist point of view for example he loved the idea of the earth being destroyed by fire because that was a very alchemist point of view the purification you know so i thought that was so interesting and it wasn't lost on me that, you know, later we read about John Dee, and he's another character who was very much mm-hmm. like, there's this, there, it, it doesn't take you too long when you start coming on these special revelations. Yeah. New-
0: where- Newton is part of a stream of tradition yes. that, that is largely lost to us. Yeah, And since Newton uses the prophetic year, which you will, you will read about in current prophecy books just generally, uh, that's a principle that some interpreters consider really important, that has a really old history, and, and it was attractive to Newton, and it's part, again, of this stream of tradition. And mm-hmm. what, was, what makes Newton Newton is what he did with it.
5: Yeah. Right. But every single one of the people who seemed to be on that same wavelength, they all thought that they, – they, they became just megalomaniacs. They thought, well, this is something that the Lord is showing directly to me. I'm receiving this special revelation. I mean, John D thought that he literally was going to open the gate and allow people into heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, he got that – you know, yeah
0: well yeah convinced. i was I was struck by how i mean Newton never went to this extent, but some of the people that he built on that especially like as he worked out his chronology, they actually claimed to have gotten their information from conversations with angels mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and d was one of those he wasn 't the only one, but he was a, a really important one now, there's there 's there's no evidence that newton applied that method, if you want to call it a method. But there is, again, good circumstantial evidence that he was aware of that thinking because it was linked into natural philosophy, the study of nature, which is where the alchemy comes in. And Newton was ground zero for that. He's studying the natural world. And so it's very reasonable to think that he would come across these approaches. And even though he, you know we can't say that he was conjuring anything or like doing this kind of stuff he, he did pick up other pieces of it Doug, you okay, i would
2: just want to throw up something in there a quote john maynard keens he's the guy who acquired most of uh newton's writings on alchemy and released them and he stated that newton was not the first of the age of reason he was the last of the magicians
6: Oh.
4: Yeah. So, so, for some context for the audience who haven't read the articles or maybe don't know who John Dee was, he, he lived about a hundred years before Newton, and he had he was he was a brilliant brilliant mathematician who also consulted spirits through a medium, and the spirits down were giving him over a period of I can't remember how many years, maybe twelve years, uh, secret knowledge to you know. Does it matter? Just bad stuff, right? I mean, it's baffling to us, but he thought that knowledge was going to allow him to bring to elevate this earthly plane into a higher level. So then the the kingdom could come. So then Jesus could have the second coming. And so it was a, it was a century before Newton, but then his papers were published right when Newton was working on similar things. And and although Newton never. None of the none, none of our um, papers could link that Newton read D. It's unrealistic to think that he wasn't aware because when um, the papers that these angels or spirits revealed some secret language to uh, John D. When those when that was published, Newton stopped working on his language, his secret sort of universal language, we, which we can get to. Uh, so that's really it's just. It's, I, I guess it's not shocking. These people had a supernatural worldview. Their supernatural worldview wasn't grounded in Scripture. I mean, they, they thought it was grounded in Scripture, but it was not grounded in the worldview of the biblical writers. It was sort of grounded in some sort of medieval, I don't know. I, I, it's kind of hard to wrap it around. Magic. My, yeah, magic. So what struck me is how much Newton was a product of his era. And we have to remember, people were being were being murdered were being killed in the most horrific ways in public state executions based on their view of communion in this era and so he lots of all the protestants thought you know the catholic church was the beast but newton thought the catholic church and the protestant reformation was the beast because the be, the great apostasy was the trinity and he didn't he he saw he thought it was just the same you know the other side of the same beast coin. Basically, he wasn't a fan of either, but he had kind of kept some of that quiet because, you know, he didn't want to get his his skin
0: he,
1: yeah his skin stripped he, off. He off didn't want to be
0: disemboweled. So,
1: <laughs> so I think we're hitting on a, a, all very similar things. Like you think Isaac Newton, you think science, and when we think science, we think materialism, we think naturalism, and that, that's what it was. So there's kind of a quote from the same sort of source that you just had. Science emerged from a period in which many inquirers were deeply involved in magic and occult practices and belief. And so if you go running to Isaac Newton thinking, well, this is the guy who, you know, invents uh, the preface to modern day calculus and all of these laws and stuff like this. And you go, okay, so now he's writing about Daniel and Revelation and unlocking a code. I really need to get into this and see what he thought. We cannot divorce that from the fact that this guy was an alchemist and into magic. And you know, I first ran across this guy, I'm like, where did I hear about Isaac Newton? It was from Drosden's Bible Code. Uh, like in the very first chapter, Newton's all over that. And he's using Newton as a way to justify doing Bible Code, which I know, Mike, you, you're you all over that because one of your first books was on the Bible Code.
2: You believe in that, right? <laughs>
0: Come on! <laughs> we did an episode so, uh, on that. If yeah, you we haven't did it, heard we did it. it, he's 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 referring back to that episode. Yeah, we did a whole episode on that. Um, yeah, I like when let's let, let's just I'll just this is what was going through my mind in part. We often look at people like Jack Parsons. Okay, if you don't know who Jack Parsons was, he was. The guy who founded, you know, JPL, he was a rocket scientist and, he, and a brilliant guy. Uh, he was also a, a disciple of Aleister Crowley and, a, and a, a deeply committed occultist, you know, doing sex rituals and all this kind of stuff. He, he wound up blowing himself up in his garage, but he was the founder of JPL and, and we look at a guy like that, and you think well that 's just kind of crazy you know I mean here you've got this brilliant guy that 's got this great scientific mind, and look at the weird stuff he 's into well <laughs> i mean other other than you know obviously newton's not a disciple of Alistair, or, or you know Satan or anything like that um, but that 's kind of the same thing i mean you you have the, you have people who are really brilliant uh, in in one sphere, and in newton 's case because he had spent so much time thinking about biblical chronology. And it, it was chronology, it was prophecy. He had an obsession. And this, this Natalie, I think you were referring to as well, this notion in Newton's time that th- this was the scientific community, this was not the Bible guys, but the scientific community, Newton was, was really into this, wanted to create what they called a universal language. And what that meant was they found that it was difficult for scientists to speak to each other and write for the the, the greater scientific community because everybody was speaking different languages. So the idea was, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we came up with our own language of science that everybody in all the scientific fields would sort of know the code words to, they would know the lingo, and, and literally, like, come up with their own dictionary, their own lexicon for what they meant so that they could talk with each other without the barrier of natural language. Well, Newton took that idea and he applied it to prophecy. And his belief was that all the prophets, the biblical prophets, used the same words and meant the same things by those words. And each of those words had a symbolic equivalent that fit into the natural world. It's kind of a weird idea, but it was it was like a language of symbology. And he was driven to do this and he actually developed his own. I don't know if I have a, a partial slide here or what, um, no, I, I'd have to put the PDF up here. But if you get the PDF, if you download it where you're sitting, there's a, there's a snippet of it. I'm just gonna, yeah, I'll leave that right up there for now you know, he had everything in scripture, like if if it mentioned the sun or the moon or a lion or the lamb, it meant something to to Newton symbolically, not in in an ancient Near Eastern or even a Jewish context. It, it, It had an entirely different context for him, one that he could marry to a wider study of the natural world. And he used that to produce his commentaries on Daniel and Revelation, so that was actually his method. So he's driven by this idea, and I mean, we can talk about some of the interesting places where that led him, you know, where he landed because of that. But I, I think it's worth bringing up because you say, "Well, we don't do that today." Well, <laughs> is really? I mean, I, th- I think I think we could all think of examples where interpreters kind of do do that. They're just. They're not maybe part of a big stream of tradition like Newton was. Go ahead, Doug. Well,
4: he was looking for a key, the, the right interpretive key to unlock the secrets. And then he went through he went through um, history and tried to say, well, you know, and, and link yeah, things corresponding up. Corresponding it all
0: to history. Yeah,
4: and, and that's where, you, you know, where do you start the 1,260-year yeah. clock? And people, I mean, we don't do that today, do we? But <laughs> it was the logic of Millennial Thought Article... it, 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 um, several, basically these, these scholars were writing to each other, sharing their, you know, most of them had looked at it symbolically, um, and Newton was more of a, you know, a code guy, but it was interesting how they would share their ideas and they would, he would reshape over time and, and, you know, think differently over time. And it reminded me a lot of online discussions today when people would sort of argue, um, but back then, of course, they were writing it out and then mailing it, and you, and you didn't have time to get yeah. Man, How dare you, you know, and write back, you know. <laughs> it was just, it was very thoughtful, even though uh, people were obviously angry, angered and disagreed about their, um, their interpretive framework.
2: Yeah. yeah, and there's an irony here, too, because, you know,
0: 2060, mm, that's getting close. Yeah, I've seen 2060 referenced in current prophecy. And I don't, I don't read a whole lot of prophecy stuff, but I have seen this one. And it's interesting to yeah. me that, that
2: uh, just ironic to understand that he was actually angered with the date setters and the guys who were trying to say, it's, it's our generation right now, here and now. And he actually, part of those dates was an expression of his frustration to put it off in the distance. He even said so. Here's what he, was, he wrote. He was punting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, This I mentioned, this is Newton. This I mentioned, not to assert relation to the 2016 and that, that stuff. This I mentioned not to assert when the time of the end shall be, but to put a stop to the rash conjectures of fanciful men who are frequently predicting the time of the end and by doing so bring the sacred prophecies into discredit as often as their predictions fail. Yeah, no, and I think and that's also that relevant lot. for today as well.
1: Yeah, And so there's the irony, right? Exactly what you're talking about. That he doesn't want to do it but he does do it and then now the years coming close and so we're using him to do the very thing that he didn't want to do well
3: even more than that this was, this was all in his private notes it was it, you know yeah. later on in his life even it wasn't meant to even right. be public the way it is today but look look how much it is
6: yeah and he actually wrote that the 2060 date was kind of arbitrarily chosen by the media when this story broke back in 2003 because he didn't say it's going to be 2060 he said uh should not be before 2060 nor after Twenty three forty
3: four. So, yeah. you know, That's not in our lifetimes though, so we can ignore that. So we exactly, and
6: it that, was not yeah. make for as compelling a headline when you're trying to sell newspapers or get clicks. Yeah.
4: And it wasn't even the end of the world. It's just a transition to the the millennium, really. Which, yeah. When, yeah. so again, it's all clickbait. And it's it's real irritating. But I can see totally how twenty sixty can be used. Will be will be used as we get closer because that's one hundred twenty years after the founding of Israel. And you know, as in the days of Noah, you see how people how, what people do. They glob onto these yeah, things. Yeah, so the one twenty mentioned in Genesis six. Right. Six three. Yep. Yeah. So that's what people will do. And it's that's not that Newton was punting because he, you know his Christology was wrong, but his. His way of living, he wanted people to focus on living for others, which I thought, well, that's really good. You know, so why were you spending so much time looking at prophecy? Maybe he got frustrated and he was like, maybe we should just live for others. But that's that's why he shot that date way out there. But again, it wasn't for public consumption. He was really frustrated with so many date setters.
1: But it's interesting that, so he, he, uh, he's doing actually the same thing that kind of you were just talking about that we're doing because so he takes a historist view of revelation and so he's looking at all of these points in time in in history of the church and and he's like dozens of them that he's saying well this prophecy about the horn corresponds to this obscure date in 342 yeah. and he just goes and goes and goes and finally you know they end up picking the eight hundred one. yeah what and I,
5: ultimately, with Newton, I feel like, the, like one of the biggest things we can take away, kind of piggybacking on all of this, is that his bias informed everything that he came up with in, in his interpretation of prophecy. Ultimately, he was just radically anti-Trinitarian. I mean, he feels that everything everything falls apart from that point down to history that is what's the the apostasy is that is everything's related to that and he denied the divinity of Christ he had these very specific very unorthodox beliefs and everything that he did was drawn from from that because that was his pet belief Mm -hmm. so I feel like that's something that's really really important because we give him so much credit obviously much credit he deserves for being a very intelligent and wise person who had all these breakthrough discoveries in the natural sciences but ultimately he was incredibly biased and he had a narrative that he wanted to push and he would cram things in to fit that narrative even sometimes coming up I mean uh, I can't I, I don't have a laptop (laughs) <laughs> One of the papers that we read specifically said that um, sometimes the things, the dates he came up with, the um, symbols that the way he interpreted them were just from his imagination because he needed them to fit the larger narrative that he was trying to push with regard to the the anti-Trinitarian uh, mindset that he had. I mean, that was his agenda. Start to finish.
6: Yeah, exactly right. And just to, to pick that up and, and run with it, uh, specifically, that led Newton to conclude that the uh, the woman clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet of Revelation 12 was the same as the woman on the beast of Revelation 17. Really strange. So he, b- because he wanted to identify that uh, as the the what he called the Catholic horror, the Roman Catholic horror. Yeah. <laughs> um, So the woman who was nurtured for 1,260 days in the wilderness for the place that God had prepared for her was actually the Church of Rome that was being protected in the wilderness while the remnant of which Isaac Newton was obviously one was being persecuted for believing that, you know, the Trinity was an abomination. And then she comes back from the wilderness uh, in Revelation 17 and then finally destroyed in Revelation 18. I, I don't see how you conclude that the woman of <laughs> Revelation 12 or the woman of Revelation 17, I mean, the woman who gives birth, because that was his belief, that the woman in Revelation yeah, it, 12 it, had given birth to the male child a rule with the rod of iron who's yeah. caught up to heaven. That's Jesus, right?
0: This is going to sound goofy, but he would, he would say it's a woman. They're both women. Yeah. So he has
6: right. he has this sort of obsession with consistency. But when but when the woman but when the church had gone off the rails in whatever date he chose 381 or 800 or you know there are a number of other dates which is how he comes up with this range of dates, that's when that's why he, that woman now becomes the apostate church of Rome and is off in the wilderness instead of being protected from the dragon Satan, she's actually a tool of the dragon.
2: Uh, but what Natalina was saying was, you know, I, I was also noticing as I was reading, I think it's really important, this this notion of bias, and in particular, you can't help but see the psychological uh, connections there. You've got a man, yeah, he's this great scientist, we know that scientists are, can often be obsessed with hyper details, it's good when it creates, uh, you know, a qu- uh, quantum physics, uh, when it creates a Newtonian understanding of the world and physics, etc., but when that, that scientific mentality is taken into Bible interpretation, or in this case, prophecy, every symbol has to mean only one thing. Right then and there, you know, as all of us here who are familiar with, you know, even what Mike has taught about the ancient Near Eastern, understanding symbols and and worldview, the ancient Near Eastern world and the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew world, you see very clearly, well, actually, there is a consistency of some meaning between symbols, but there's also a fluidity, you know, like water can be both a symbol of judgment or a symbol of the Holy Spirit and, and salvation, depending on the context of the prophecy, you know? So, but, so I was seeing the danger of taking this, this scientific mindset, applying it to the Bible, and this is the kind of damage that's created when you do that. And, you know, I think we're inheritors of that scientific mindset. We're post-enlightened, even as Christians, you know, and I think we have that same danger that we have to watch out for.
1: But it, So it reminds me a, a little bit in a weird way of the things David Flynn, David Flynn used to talk about with theurgy kind of mm-hmm. Neoplatonism where, uh, things in heaven mirror things on earth. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same sort of thing, like the the natural and the spiritual, they have to relate to one another and, you know, again, we're on the other side of Descartes, who splits these two things in half, and so now science is all natural and material. The spiritual world's completely irrelevant to that, and that's not the way that these guys are thinking. And we, I think we, it's just really important to to enter into the their realm of thought in order to understand how you know this guy who's so into math and, and you know those kinds of things and laws of gravity. Why why would he be so Drawn to Revelation and Daniel. It's because these things can't be divorced from one another in his realm of thought. But they are divorced from one another in our realm of thought.
3: You know what's weird about it too is um, as as much as uh, scientists today, generally speaking, try to get away from the spiritualism stuff. They end up going right yeah. back to it they 'll just call yeah. it different things yeah. you know, they 'll call it quantum fields or you know they 'll give it <laughs> names like that but what you 've got to pay attention to is how they 're interpreting it you know because quantum field theory is correct it 's true it 's the most accurate science we have, but what does it mean so there are some physicists that will say. Uh, that, that will use that towards their own spiritual belief. I've, I've heard two different physicists, one saying that quantum field theory proves there's no afterlife, and another physicist that says quantum field theory proves that there is an afterlife. And uh, so it's, it's weird that even though there's that attempt at a divorce between you know, spiritualism and materialism and science, they still keep finding their way back to it. Yeah. They just give it different names. Can't help it.
2: Yeah. And I, I have also, I, I read where uh, someone pointed out the fact that since we, since we uh, deal with peer-reviewed papers that try to be fair presentation of both sides, the other side of the coin is there's a sense in which his occult interest actually drove him in his understanding of gravity. Mm-hmm. So we may not have yeah. Newtonian mechanics if he did not have... because yeah, that's science, the point I was trying to make. Yeah, without occultism yeah. in science is defined as action at a distance. Or now they call it spooky action at a distance, right? But that's what was driving his pursuit of understanding gravity. So we wouldn't have Newtonian mechanics if he didn't have that strange and sometimes bad aspect of alchemy as a part of his heart and soul,
4: that kind of reminds me of the there's a news news article just last week talking about um how, how scientists have seen something exiting a black hole. And so that throws Einstein's theory completely it's it's really challenging Einstein's theory. Einstein rewrote Newtonian physics and you know Newton's Newton's laws were very helpful for four hundred years, and Einstein came along and that's been extremely helpful till now, and now scientists are like, well now what are we gonna come up with? Something new that explains what we're observing. The reason I bring that up is I'm reminded of, of Newton's eschatology. His system. His system works. His system works, but it was wrong. All of our systems work. Something I learned from um, uh, Mike. Some of his teachings. All systems work because they all make assumptions. How do you know if your assumptions right? And and I think all systems are basically wrong. And so we, we I think we should show a lot more grace towards each other, especially talking in general, we should show grace towards each other. But when we discuss eschatology, if I learned anything from Newton, man, very helpful. You know, I wore a contact, some thanks for the you know his optics that he designed and all that.
0: But I, but, I hate I hate my progressive lenses, by the way, so <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So <laughs> we should show a lot more grace towards, you know, Newton, yeah, his eschatology is wrong, his theology is wrong. Well, some of my theology is wrong too. I haven't figured it all out.
2: Um, I can tell you where you are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I, I, I mean, I obviously don't need any convincing about the importance of um, taking Scripture in its own context, okay? Because, I, I mean, that's sort of the, the one-string banjo that I have here, um, interpreting the text of Scripture in light of its own context and not imposing a different post-biblical context on it. And all of our contexts, all of our Christian traditions are post-biblical. You know, Catholic Church, early church fathers, you know, Reformation, Evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, they're all post-biblical era. Even the early church fathers are two or three centuries removed. Uh, And you're talking about almost a millennium removed from the Old Testament. You can count the number of church fathers literally on one hand that knew Hebrew. And they don't have access to any of the stuff we have access to now, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, ancient Near Eastern texts. That stuff doesn't get deciphered until the 1800s and afterward. They don't have access to any of this stuff. So we have access to more and and I would hope that it would prompt us to go back and try to again have the Israelite living in our heads is the way I like to say it. So when I read something like this with Newton, it's like, I'm not Isaac Newton. I mean, I'll I'll never see the day when I'm like a tenth as smart as Isaac Newton. But the problem isn't his smarts. The problem was his method. Okay, method is really important. And so when you're trying to impose the filter he makes on the biblical text, it's just a different filter. And it's going to lead you in all sorts of weird places. And so it reinforced the, again, to me, it's like, we're never going to be able to do this like like we really want to. Again, have the Israelite in our head, the first century Jew in our head. I mean, that's a goal. And we should be really actively trying to do that. We're never going to you know, get there like we really want to. But that's a whole, failing over there is a lot better than succeeding over in something like this. Because you're actually closer to, to what the biblical writer under inspiration was trying to communicate in his own time, his own place, to his own audience. Biblical writers actually have audiences. There are reasons why they're writing things to the people they're writing to. You know, and, and yes, it, the Bible's written for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us, and there are things that transcend time. We all understand that. But at the end of the day, it's like, man, it's just really important to at least try to think a biblical writer's thoughts, you know, try to get his worldview in our heads so that we can at least take a shot at this. And they did have the heaven and earth connected thing, so that that isn't a bad thing, but the thing is, okay. How are you understanding the, the symbolic and the worldview language? Are you trying to impose a context for it in your time? Or are you trying to you know, think of what they were thinking about in their time?
1: You know, one of the things I thought was interesting, uh, Doug sent us a link to his actual original work of Dan, on Daniel and mm-hmm. Revelation. And so when you're reading through how he's interpreting Daniel, it's like actually really similar to how we all interpret Daniel. And so the first half of the book, you kind of go, well, I don't know what the problem is here. And so it's not until you start getting into the future, which is where, of course, all of our disagreements end up <laughs> happening, um, right. that you have the problem. But I just thought it was really interesting to see, you know, we're, we're kind of dissing, we're not kind of dissing, we're completely dissing Isaac Newton right. here on this panel. But if you were to just sit down and read at least the first half of that book, you would, you would be like, why are you guys getting so on yeah. its case?
2: Yeah, that's fair to say, and I also want to to throw out as well that he was also right about another thing, and that was the early date of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I emailed, but he, I but he, he
0: was a millenarian. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was. So, funny. how to put those two things? <laughs> <laughs> I think
4: going back to John D, and he, one of the reasons he was he was a brilliant mathematician he wanted to find the math of the spirit realm so he could help control it and again repair this earth to bring the bring the, that sounds very Babel esque and it also sounds like certain strains in our modern church and i, I wonder how much of that you know, how much of our disagreements originate in inspiration by false spirits because it's and that's a loaded question. But we, that's why I think it's so important to get back into the Israelites in our head because God was actually inspiring the people who wrote the scriptures using their imagery, not, you know, not a, the imagery. And so if a, if another spirit's coming and saying, hey, use these symbols instead, and I, oh, and it works, that's, that leads to, A a distraction, at least something that is anti-Christ. It's at least a distraction,
1: yeah. Brian earlier gave this quote, and check out, you didn't, you didn't, this is right where you stopped. Newton was not the first (laughs) of the age of reason. He was the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, the last great mind which looked out on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance rather less than 10,000 years ago always read the rest of the verse
5: (laughs) (laughs) well and the another thing to point out too is that newton and d they really seemed like they had such good intentions at first initially they were so hungry to understand all of this i'm thinking of d more specifically john d but he prayed and prayed lord Reveal, help me understand this. I want to understand all of this and I'm, I'm having, I'm hitting a wall. I don't get it. And he prayed and prayed and prayed so deeply. But then it, you know, it, it takes a little turn where it's like, Lord, you know, I've been asking you to send me a teacher, but I don't think there's any humans that could really get this. So maybe you could send me an angel, you know, and and you know, and then ultimately he did start scrying and speaking to angels and receiving these Enochian angel languages and all of, all of that stuff and so and it just kind of rolled down the hill into the point where, you know, he ended up where he did, where he was receiving all these angelic revelations, and then you know, you fast forward, and I I believe Doug mentioned that uh, John Dee's works were republished right around the time that Isaac Newton would have had access to that, Mm -hmm. and you see him carrying on so many of those traditions, and I think Isaac Newton, as I was driving here today, I listened to a podcast about the life of Isaac Newton, I was just curious about it, and he had won't, won't go into a bunch of detail but he had kind of a rough life a lot of abandonment he ended up being very introverted and inside his own mind and he wanted to help people he wanted to help the earth he wanted to help um make things better and so it was altruistic in on his mm-hmm. part too but it's kind of like we say it's just that little leap between i'm gonna make it my mission to figure this stuff out and god chose me specifically to receive this revelation you know and i think we see that all the time that's something that's never gone away i think we see people doing that all the time
3: yeah it's pride i mean that's why pride cometh before the fall you know once you get to the place, you can have all the great intentions in the world and you can even be helping people but once you get to the place where you feel like you're the only one that understands that's where the enemy has you and then he can use you for a force of destruction and you're right we have seen that time and time and time again it's rooted in pride it's
0: called the internet. It yeah. <laughs>
4: it's, it's called the uh, the Apple symbol, right? Because it's supposed to be um, Newton's the, the apple that fell and hit his head. That's yeah. the symbol, of the technology that's going to control our lives. Yeah, right. we get notes see how about that works. That, uh, Skywatch
6: every now and then. Yeah. It's like you, you and Sharon are using Macs on the desk there, don't you? Well,
3: yeah, okay. Well, it's because they know better than than us, Derek. <laughs> but, well, what we're but, trying but, to say
6: but, here is is that if you do believe in the twenty sixty date, you are. The Antichrist <laughs> I think no, I think Mike really uh, hit on this point at the conclusion of his talk last night, and I thought this was and i 'm really glad you did this, Mike, because it illustrates what can come of an obsession with trying to find the date or the guy you know who is Gog of Magog, is it Assad, is it Putin? Who is it? Who is the Antichrist? Is it the president? Is it the former president? Is it, you know, whoever? Doesn't really matter because it doesn't change our prime directive. And like right. Mike said last night, if we do figure it out somehow, some way, and you failed to fulfill, the, you had one job! Right, <laughs> yeah. you and had one job. if you didn't job. do it, then it doesn't matter what else you've done because you didn't do the one thing, we didn't do the one thing we were commanded to do.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's actually a good note to to you know wrap up on, because I, you know, it's it's different, <clears throat> you know, in the in in the the serious Christian world, I mean, the, the, the people who are really trying to do right, understand Scripture, it, 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 this can become a distraction, and I I have really sensed that. It's it's not just eschatology. It's views of Genesis, views of creation. You know, any number of things. And you know, in in the secular world, the world of of the of of the internet, in that part of Middle Earth, you know, that wouldn't be um, the believing part. You know, you have, I think, a propensity where you have these people who perceive themselves as misunderstood geniuses, and you know the world just doesn't understand, you know, my brilliance, and, and you need to, or else you're going to, you know. I don't think we have that problem so much in the believing community. I think the problem in the believing community is just one of distraction. You know, that it's, it's, there's, there are certain things in theology, and look, I'm an academic, I get it. I, I want to know things too. This is, this is what I do. But I I, I guess I'm blessed. I I'd love to Sit up here and sound real spiritual, like oh, I just you know, fast and pray every day that I'm not going to go off the deep end. I, I don't do that, but I, I just think providentially that I had it beaten into my head as a as a young believer to not lose lose sight of what of the whole reason we're here. You know, just just don't do that. Like you said, you had one job. It it, it it's so simple. But it is so easy when you get wrapped up into something, and this is kind of the mo- most obvious example, uh, it is really easy to start devoting your time and your money and your energy to this one thing over here, and you miss how you could spend those resources in doing the Great Commission. It's, it's a very subtle way to get a little bit lost you know, along the way. So I, I have become more sensitive to that and, and just reading this, like, here we go again. You know, it, there it is. You know, Somebody else just down the tube there you know, just took, took the ride and didn't know when to stop.
4: When I was in college, I studied math for a couple of years and I knew calculus was of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. If you're studying calculus, it's not of the devil. It makes life work, even though Newton invented it.
0: <laughs> well... I want to thank everybody for being on the panel, being here. You had to make a trip this time. It wasn't just looking at a screen. (laughs) So uh, thank you for all being here, and thank you for listening and observing how the sausage is made, at least for this podcast. And, you know, that's our, our episode for tonight, so thanks.